You're listening to In the Open, a Mental Health America podcast, a space where we explore mental health and navigate the challenges of life through honest and candid conversation. Hi, everybody. It's America. We're back for another session of In the Open. We're continuing our series for Pride Month, and I have two guests with me today. Teresa is in here. We still love her, but she's going to be back in a couple of weeks. Um, I have our special guest uh, named Fee Regis. Fee, say hi to everyone. Hello, everyone. My name is Fee Regis. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm excited to be here today. Awesome. And then we have M Scahill, who's been with us before, but she's joining us again. Say hi, Em. Hey, everyone. Yep. I'm, my name is Em Scahill. My pronouns are she, they. Um, I'm the Director of Public Awareness and Education at MHA, so working on our Pride campaign and excited to join the pod for these episodes. Awesome. So we're going to be continuing the series, like I mentioned, and we'll be diving into what does it mean to be non-binary? I've known Fee for a number of years now, and I'd love for them to share their experience in identifying as non-binary. And how did that show up for them in their life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a little bit more um, about my intro. So as I mentioned, I'm Fee Regis, I use they, them pronouns. I'm the deputy director for the All Children, All Families program at the Human Rights Campaign. Uh, the Human Rights Campaign, or HRC, is the nation's largest LGBTQ plus civil rights advocacy organization. Uh, so really excited to be here today. So yeah, I've known America from, you know, the time when I was still using he, him pronouns and uh, using my birth name, etc. So a lot of changes in um, our history together. Um, and really, my journey starts from as early as I can remember, if I'm being very honest with you. Um, I can remember from the earliest of ages, um, looking for different ways to express my gender beyond the binary, whether that was, you know, sneaking into my mom's heels and wig while she was out, or finding other ways to express myself. That's always been a part of who I am. However, I you know, also identify as queer. And I think at, at that early age, that's what stuck out to me the most, because I think that's what more folks were asking me about or, or bullying me about, if I'm being honest. So um, I, I was really hyper-focused on my sexual orientation at an early age, even though I still had the awareness that my gender expression, gender identity, you know, were probably different than my sex assigned at birth. You know, I didn't have the terminology then or, or all of the information, but I still could sense that internally. That was very clear to me. But again, because of the bullying I was facing around my sexual orientation, some challenges with family acceptance, um, a lot of my adolescence and um, early 20s, you know, really were spent focusing on my queer identity and navigating coming out and the wonderful things that I gained and some of the challenging things that I lost um, through that experience. I will say probably around my mid-20s, um, I began feeling a bit more freedom because, you know, I was living on my own, making my own money. So I was able to, you know, really have some more agency over how I show up in the world. So that started with me, you know, maybe dabbling in purchasing clothing or accessories that, you know, are typically known as being feminine items, right? Um, but those items always felt very natural to me. And there was always a sense of joy that I got every time I made that purchase and was able to wear, 
you know, whatever I had gotten. You know, I also started experimenting a little bit with makeup um, at that age. And, you know, what I found really interesting in my earliest experiences of being a bit more free with my gender expression, I actually received a lot of pushback from my own community. So a lot of the queer folks that I used to go out with all had something to say about the way I was showing up and, you know, telling me it looked weird or, you know, why am I doing that or that I'm I'm too masculine to do that. You know, I'm not one of the girls. You know, a lot of those things were said about me, whether it's, I don't know, my deep voice or my beard or something. They, they all were under the assumption that I was too masculine to express my gender in a way that felt authentic to me. And unfortunately, I think because of my history of being bullied, when I got that pushback from people who I considered my friends, I think that pushed me back into my shell a bit. So I, I definitely spent a number of years sort of reverting back to, you know, more somewhat hyper-masculine presentation, I would say. Somewhere um, along that journey, I, I started noticing that when folks would use the pronouns he, him, I would have like a literal physical reaction to them using those pronouns where I would feel it in my stomach, almost that, that feeling you get right before you get sick, right? Or before you're like really frightened of something, like I would feel my stomach like drop into my feet um, every time I heard those pronouns and it would send me sort of spiraling mentally into a, a challenging place, right? And I didn't really know what to do about that. I had all of the early messages from family, society, friends telling me that, you know, I can't be this person because of, you know, how I was born and things that are out of my control, like the way my hair grows or the way my voice is, right? There are things that can be modified, of course, but that's, that's what I was born with. And I, I think because of that, I, I started... Uh, negating my own journey, right? At, at a certain point, I started policing myself, right? Um, whether that was in my personal life or how I was showing up in, in my dating life, I noticed that sometimes when I, you know, expressed my gender authentically, dating became a lot more challenging. Not everybody was, you know, giving me, you know, the, the eye <laughs> as, you know, maybe they used to when I presented differently. And that was another, you know, sort of consideration for me. There's a lot to unpack in, in what you've shared, especially around kind of your early experience and, and you saying you didn't necessarily have the terminology. And then you, you found a place where you identified as non-binary, but how did you come to that? How did you come to that language? Honestly, part of it was working at the human rights campaign um, and being surrounded by peers and colleagues, you know, up in the community. And it was actually a 4th of July celebration. I still remember to this day, a 4th of July celebration with some colleagues. And I was sharing with them the discomfort I was feeling every time he, him was used. And that, you know, I was saying that, oh, well, I can't be non-binary because of the way I show up and the way I look, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the person was like, no, that's not how this works. And so, you know, I think that conversation really gave me the permission to allow myself to explore further. The more I explored, the more I realized, you know, internally my, how I understand myself to be is pretty high, 
highly feminine. So I identify as non-binary trans femme because for the most part, I think my identity is primarily femme. However, there are certain days or moments or environments where maybe my more masculine side will come out um, naturally, right? Not as a protective factor, but just because it just so happens to. And I didn't really have a problem with that. I didn't mind showing up in that way because I felt like both were authentic to me, though the feminine part of me to me, I would say is the most at the forefront. So I think that's why non-binary made sense to me because I did feel like sometimes I was a blend of both male and female. Sometimes I felt like just feminine. Sometimes I felt like just masculine. Sometimes I felt like neither, right? So non-binary really made sense to me for that reason and felt authentic to me for those reasons. When you say this, when you say share this idea of non-binary and from what you've kind of laid out, it is really this idea that it's a mix of the complex aspect of who we are as people. And then you added an additional additional language that we hadn't discussed before, like trans femme or trans masculine and, and what that is. So I don't know if, if you can share maybe M in, in terms of some of the work that you've been doing with the Pride Collection for, for this month. What can we tell people around this identity of being non-binary and the additional, I'm going to call them labels, but the words that follow, what does that look like? It's, it's such a complicated thing because I think a lot of people who, you know, we have the, the binary so imposed on us and we grow up thinking of men and women. And I think as people have started to become more open to there being other gender identities, as great as that is, it almost has started in a way where people are viewing non-binary as a third gender. And that's that's not the case. There is not one non-binary gender. There are so many different layers within that. Um, like Fee talking about being assigned male at birth and presenting more femininely. Um, I was assigned female at birth and still present more femininely, I think, the more masculine traits in me come from more personality. A lot of my my issue with gender in general is that I don't understand what it is. I understand biological sex, but beyond that, I feel like it is just personality traits and expression. And uh, I don't get how that ties into core identity. But I think language is a big piece of it because for me, I never I never had that language growing up in you know middle school, high school. But I did feel like I was not a girl in the sense that other people, other girls were girls. And I kind of had a problem with that because there's the, the whole concept of like, oh, I'm not like other girls. You know, there's no problem with other girls. I think that's very useful, though. E- you know, even for myself, I, I don't identify as non-binary, you know. But when you talk about personality traits, I was raised with an older brother. So in many ways, a lot of the traits I have now are more masculine and, and that are deemed more masculine, right? Where I'm, I'm more outspoken. And these are the things that my brother just taught me, right? So I took those on. And similarly to what your experiences with other girls, right? Growing up, a lot of people would be like, well, why are you doing that? A girl doesn't do that. And I was like, because my brother told me, you know, like, it was just so normal to me. And now, 
even in, in my professional life where I take on like an, a more assertive role, there has been sometimes this pushback. It's like, oh, you should act more feminine. And you're like, wait, why? Right? Like, why is assertiveness seen as something that's more masculine in nature and can't be allowed in quotes in a more feminine space. So I think there is a lot of conversation there. Fee, tell us tell us a little bit about some of the struggles that you encountered when you kind of started meshing all of these identities together. What did that do for you? How did that um, impact your mental health and such? Yeah, yeah. So that was a journey uh, in and of itself because of all the trauma I have around you know, being queer and being bullied from a very young age and having challenges with family acceptance. I think while realizing I was non-binary was freeing in a way, it also was terrifying um, because it meant having to return to a certain level of trauma as it relates to my identity, um, just because of, you know, my family, because of society, etc. So actually, when I first began to transition, which I don't really use the word transition, I use the word journey, because that feels a bit more authentic to me. At the beginning of my journey, I actually used both he, him and they, them pronouns. And a lot of that I realized later on in life was really about my anxiety and uh, trauma around being bullied and not being um, affirmed in my identity. So I had the line of thinking that, okay, if I keep he, him as part of my pronouns, then when people misgender me, it won't hurt as much because I've said that I also use he, him pronouns. So it won't impact me in the same negative way. Yes, you kind of use it like a safety mechanism. Exactly. It was a way to protect myself. But what I found very quickly is that that same dysphoria or, or you know, feelings that I had when someone would use he, him, that continued, right? And it, it got... I think even more pressing as I began to focus more on my gender. So um, after that, I made the shift to just using exclusively they, them pronouns. And I changed to my chosen name of Fee. It, it, it was a journey. It was a real journey. I think, again, the, the trauma around bullying and family acceptance when it came to having to navigate how I would show up authentically in the world with, you know, sort of the new identities that I realized, you know, for myself, it, it put me into a deep, deep, deep state of depression, very high levels of anxiety, challenges with suicidality, you know, it really had a huge impact on me. But I, I want to be clear that that impact was not because I was non-binary, it was because of what I was already experiencing and what I expected to experience from the world. Anytime I've had depression or anxiety um, around my identity, it's not because I'm queer or because I'm non-binary. It's because there are laws being passed about people like me, or there are people being murdered who are like me, or there are people being kicked out of their homes like me, right? So those mental health challenges are not innate to being part of the community. It's the, it's the, bias and mistreatment and discrimination that comes from society based on that identity. So it really sent me into a tailspin. And at the same time, it saved my life in a way as well, 
there's a certain level of joy um, or gender euphoria, as they call it, when you're expressing yourself authentically. It, it sort of breathed life back into me, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I want to say too, where, so our Pride campaign this year is focused on affirming identities. And you brought up that authenticity piece and how it is not our queerness that causes mental health challenges. It is everyone else. <laughs> it is the way that we are treated, what is going on in the world. And something else you mentioned too earlier, um, how you kind of reverted back into how you presented to do so in a more cisgender heteronormative way. And I think that's so interesting. Something I've noticed a lot in myself is like the the self-policing, the self-regulation. You mentioned with pronouns, I use she, they pronouns. I do question if that is true to me or if it is a way to make my pronouns more palatable so that other people accept them, other people feel more comfortable if they do mess up exactly what you said it won't hurt as much because they're it's she they it's they're in my pronouns it's fine and at this point like i do i do feel comfortable with that but i think there is an internal struggle there of still like how honest am i being with myself because i had a different journey where i did not know from a young age and once i started to realize my queerness you mentioned that freedom that came with it like my whole world just exploded in terms of like oh my God, I went 24 years without realizing this one thing. What else do I not know about myself? I, I, I like what both of you are sharing around this idea of how I think oftentimes the first place where people end up is, oh, well, they, they live with depression because they identify as queer or they live with depression because they are gay, whatever the, but they are, right? That labeling. And the reality is that so much pressure is set on us as people that the mental health aspects of it is secondary, right? It's a result of all the issues that do come to play when you have to think about your personal safety, when you have to manage that internal process that both of you are referencing, right? And in many ways, protecting yourself and how you identify and how you believe yourself to show up in the world and want to show up in the world compared to the comfort that you're trying to have and level set for others, right? Where, where you're saying, oh, okay, it's okay that they say she or he, that's okay. But that's so much mental power and emotional power that has to come into that. How are you both navigating this in, in a world that is continuously changing and the language continues to change around it? It's challenging. Like you said, it is a lot to navigate because I wasn't necessarily prepared for what I was going to experience, right? I didn't recognize that from the moment I left my apartment door, I would be navigating some sort of challenges to my identity, whether it's the way people are looking at me, whether it's the way they're laughing or, you know, the way they're making loud comments that I can hear. It ranges from that to, you know, me just literally walking to a store and getting death threats. You know, there have been multiple times where I'm literally just breathing, just existing, just walking down the street and people will literally come up to me and tell me they're going to kill me and that they're serious and, give them some time and they're going to do it, you know, and there are tons of people around me walking around 
just ignoring it, letting it all happen, right? And that's a terrifying experience when you're not only being um, threatened, but when the people around you are also pretending they don't notice and that they don't hear. Because what I began to feel like is not only can I not trust that someone won't attack or assault me in some way, but I can't trust that anyone would intervene on my behalf either, which then makes me feel even more vigilant in my safety and security. And I, I, re I remember when I first began, you know, expressing my gender authentically, it was really hard to leave my house. You know, in some ways, you know, as terrible as the pandemic was, it, it allowed me to navigate this journey because I didn't have to have that level of concern when, because I wasn't leaving my house. But once I did, I would find my mood instantly, you know, changed and um, that I would go into a deep depression or get really frustrated and angry the minute I saw someone look at me a certain way or make a certain comment about me. And it would impact everyone around me because they would notice, you know, now Fee's quiet for the next 30 minutes and they have this terrible look on their face and, you know, they feel bad, but there's nothing they can do, right? Um, so even leaving my house became... A really big challenge you know if i'm being honest even to this day you know there are things that i'm invited to that i'm like i don't know that i would feel safe there so i don't know that i want to go it, it, it's twofold either it limits where i go or it limits how i show up if i do push myself to show up that means that more often than not i am making concessions on expressing myself authentically because i'm that worried about my safety and i don't want another you know, evening of death threats, right? So maybe I'll dress a little bit more cisgender or, you know, something of that sort. Or, you know, I'll have to like ask my partner, well, are you wearing makeup today? Because at least I won't be alone if you are. You know, it's like there's this constant negotiation that I'm making with myself for my safety. And that's really challenging, not only in being afraid for your safety, but then also feeling like you're not being authentic to yourself when you're making those concessions. You talked about being vigilant, but immediately I was like, that's not vigilant. That's like hyper vigilant because your senses get so like, it's like you have to put on an armor, like an invisible armor to be like, okay, I'm ready to do this. Come what may. And even doing that emotionally you still have to make the decision to walk out the door. And I think that's, that's a struggle that oftentimes people don't really talk about. And the other thing you mentioned around allyship, right? And people showing up and being able to also help and support and protect. That's something that for me is really important as an ally. Um, and even in conversation, right? Where people may be saying, Use, using words that are not affirming, that don't create a safe space, that in the end, it's like, yo, like, shut up, don't say that, you know, even just that is enough to like, sometimes it's shocking that you actually say something, which is ridiculous. But on the other side of it, it does help put even a tiny layer of additional protection towards individuals that may not necessarily feel safe. And I, I appreciate that so much and how you've shared that. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Fee. I appreciate that. I think a really important point to make is that the, the whole double-edged sword of this, right? Like it is painful to not show up as yourself, but it is also painful to be in that hypervigilant state. And that's like 
that's an active trauma where that we are, you know, all in where even before someone says a comment, just walking out that front door, you know what you're opening yourself up to. And that's a question that I have for you, Fee, as someone who presents, you know, wearing makeup and having facial hair and a deep voice and wearing heels. I present fairly cisgender. I can present fairly cisgender. How do you get the courage to do that, to walk out the door every day? And even when you are taking your safety into, into consideration and maybe not wearing makeup, knowing that in most cases, you're not going to pre present and probably don't want to present as a cisgender. So where, how, how do you do it? How do you, how do you keep going every day? That's a great question. I think two things come to mind for me immediately. One, you know, it's sort of, as I was saying earlier, the deep level of joy that I get when expressing myself authentically, I don't want to say it outweighs the safety concerns, but it is so deeply felt within me that it gives me the light that I need to face that darkness, if that makes sense. When I walk past the mirror and I'm fully expressing myself authentically, it's like I can literally see my inner child looking back at me, just smiling from ear to ear and saying like, you did it, you did it. And then I get to say back, I'm doing this for you. And that feeling is, is what keeps me going. And then the second thing I'll say, you all might be familiar with Alok. Alok is a, a poet, um, activist, et cetera, that I follow. And they said um, something on a podcast one day that really, really stuck with me. And, you know, they were talking about how pre-colonialism, a lot of, you know, BIPOC countries had non-binary or gender expansive folks, often in highly revered positions. And, you know, how that changed after, you know, colonialism and, and dress code laws, et cetera. And they were asking themselves, why would, you know, our trans or gender expansive ancestors continue to leave the home expressing themselves authentically if they knew that it would immediately result in being jailed or, or other, you know, forms of punishment, right? And what they said was the only thing they can imagine as the reason for them continuing to do that is to send love letters to the future trans and gender expansive folks in the world. It's like them showing up authentically despite what they were facing was a love letter to me to say, even though I faced this, I did it, so you can too. For some reason, hearing that really moved something within me and inspired me to try and send that you know, example to not only future folks, but also folks around me. I've been approached by, you know, often younger folks will say, like, I've never met anyone like me who's an adult and, you know, who's working and is happy with their lives, et cetera. So there is also, it's not, it's the internal joy that I feel. And then it's also the hope that I can make a difference for those around me now and those coming in the future. I love that. That's such a great answer. I, yeah, I remember pride last year in June feeling, you know, with everything happening in the world, feeling more connected to the roots of pride as a riot and to my queer ancestors than ever before. And that sense is even stronger this year in terms of queer ancestors and queer family and seeing us all as, as a family, all as siblings. Um, 
And I think, you know, even now as, you know, we are able to show up as we are, not always safely, but we we do it. And what that's doing for future generations, because yeah, a lot of people haven't met older trans people because a lot of them don't exist because they weren't allowed to exist. I think that's something that I've really leaned into is queer joy and how much joy I do find in my own queerness. And it is one of my favorite things about me. And then it's bigger than me. I'm not just doing this for myself. I'm doing it because people have to see me and it has to change their minds at some point. And it has to be an example for someone somewhere. And that's worth it. You both, um, Teresa's usually the one that cries on the podcast. I feel like bawling my eyes out because it, it's so powerful um, what you've shared. I think that that's the reason why we do a podcast, right? We try to help emulate knowledge and power into into the world so that folks that are struggling and may feel othered, may feel like whatever they're thinking or feeling is not right. We just need to show them examples that you are completely who you need to be and you have every right to be here. And with that, hope, I think, is the is the one thing that ties us all together, right? That we really do hope that things will get better so that people don't experience the level of crap that is going on in the world. But always being mindful of, of the safety in all, in all aspects of what that means. If I could, I would just add one more thing here. You know, if we if we bring an intersectional lens into the conversation, you know, I experience very similar policing of myself, worries of my safety, et cetera, related to my Black identity, right? So even before I went on this journey, I've been Black my whole life. Um, so I've had to worry about, am I, am I showing up too authentically? Because oftentimes folks are willing to welcome Black folks in, but when Black folks show up authentically, it's a problem, right? So I've always had to make concessions or make negotiations with myself as it relates to my Blackness for safety. And now having to do that as it relates to my trans and non-binary identity, it just compounds that because it's very rare that these things are happening in a silo. More often than not, they're happening at the same time in different environments, right? So I think it's also important to bring that intersectional lens into the conversation that these challenges are not only related to my trans and gender expansive identity, but also my Blackness and how that compounds into having you know, an even more profound impact on my mental health and just fatigue. <laughs> I'm tired, y'all. I'm tired. You know, um, it, it does wear you down after a while trying to have a, you know, show, show a, a strong face or whatever while constantly making these negotiations and calculations internally about what will keep you the most safe. So I just wanted to add that component into the conversation. I think that's very important, too, when you think about not only the intersectionality of it all, but the reality that we have days where we just don't have the energy to do all the work that's needed to not only allow ourselves to go out into the world, but then navigate like the maze of stuff that is involved in that. And I think the honesty piece of it comes to where you went, right? Fee, where you're just like, I'm tired. Who isn't of that, right? Like the struggle that you're facing consistently. It's not like, oh, some days it's there, some days it isn't. Your blackness is there every day. And that is just a reality that sometimes we forget. I think we sometimes 
as people can, um, you know, we say, oh, it's not, it's not, it's not a big deal. I do it all the time. And you kind of let it flow as, as they say, but the reality is that it does have an impact in our day well-being. So I appreciate you bringing that to the conversation. I'd love uh, if we can, you know, if, if you have any final thoughts, I think for me, my final thought is to always be able to help in any way to be able to represent allyship in a way that is meaningful for folks so that whoever is in need of support, I can, I can provide that in, in whatever capacity that I have. So I'd love to hear any final thoughts and then uh, we'll close out. Yeah, my, uh, my takeaway is the value of authenticity and how much affirming our own identities, affirming your loved one's identities, affirming queer people in general's identities matters. And mental health challenges are not related to your identity itself. And there's no, you know, conversion therapy, not a thing, doesn't work. You can't, you know, there's no taking the queerness out of someone to help their mental health. That only makes it worse because repressing who you truly are is so harmful to your mental health and letting yourself be that authentic self safely, having other people let you be that authentic self safely is one of the best protectors for our community. Yeah, I think that's very well said, you know, and what I would add, you know, we've talked a lot about the challenges and struggles and how it has negatively impacted my mental health, but I do want to make sure I'm clear that there are so many joyous moments as well within my non-binary trans femme identity. It's brought me back to life in a way that I wasn't expecting. There is a certain vitality and vigor that I have approaching life now that I didn't when I was so focused on protecting myself that I didn't realize how much of myself I was keeping from my own self. So I do just want to make sure that I'm clear that, you know, yes, there are a lot of challenges, but I'm telling you, like, there's no price I can put on that feeling that I get. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing that I've experienced up to this point in my life that has given me deeper joy, honestly. And I think, you know, keep that in mind when you're thinking of trans and non-binary folks is that, yes, there are challenges. Yes, we need your protection. And that there's also such thing as trans joy and non-binary joy and active allyship and affirming folks is what helps folks continue that joy right? And, and what allows folks to experience that. So please keep in mind that, you know, it's, it's a nuanced narrative, right? Yes, there are very real, very scary, you know, things happening as it relates to safety with the trans and gender expansive community. And at the same time, there's so much joy, there's so much beauty. And I, I want to make sure we, we, we take a moment to recognize that as well. Fabulous. Thank you both so much. Fee, appreciate the time you spent chatting with us. So we will connect with everyone next week. Keep fighting in the open, everyone. Bye.